Hello, ladies. Hello. It is so good to see all of you. Wow, look at all your smiling faces, all the chatter. I love it. Thank you so much for being here today. What a great way to start this new year, 2023, studying God's Word together. Uh, I'm Deb Haygood, part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and it is a joy, it is a great privilege for me to be able to study God's Word with all of you. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for being here. I want to say welcome to all of you that are here for the very first time at Women in the Word. Um, That is wonderful. I'm praying that you will be blessed mightily as you study God's Word. And I want to say welcome back to all of you that were here last semester. Seems like we kind of had a long break with the holidays. Hope your holidays days were lovely and uh, memorable in a good way. I have a memory. Uh, It uh, involves my Christmas tree. Uh, Every year we get a real Christmas tree, one that's been cut down and it's at Home Depot. So I went, got my Christmas tree and my son this year, I don't know where my husband was, my son and my granddaughters helped me bring it home and set it up. So as my son's setting it up, he goes, Mom, look at these gaps in between these branches, these spaces here. And some of the branches are going off in a weird angle. You know, and, and the trunk isn't even straight. It goes off to the right at the top. And my uh, granddaughters are looking, and finally my uh, granddaughter Finley, she's in the seventh grade, she goes, Well, Grammy, it's just a quirky little tree. Well... Quirky wasn't exactly what I was going for. Uh, So the next day, I put all the lights on it. I get out those uh, ornaments filled with loving memories, and I put those loving ornaments on. I even get the star on top so it looks a bit straighter, and I plug it in. And, oh, my, it looks great. What a transformation. The lights and the loving ornaments have transformed it. So I'm calling my husband, Scott, come look at the tree. And I call up my son and say, hey, bring your family over to see the tree. He's laughing, but he brings them over. And when he walks in, he goes, mom, that's amazing. And my little granddaughter, Harper, is just walking around the tree. And she goes, Grammy, it's beautiful. What happened? (laughs) What happened? Well, it was the lights and those loving ornaments transformed it. And so I've got a picture of it, actually, if we want to just throw it up there real fast. Um, Yeah, there it is. Okay. Looks looks pretty good. So every morning I would go out and I would sit in front of that Christmas tree. Um, It's kind of dark outside and I'd have the lights on. And one morning I thought, Lord, I am just like that Christmas tree. I um, have some gaps in my life. And sometimes I'm kind of distracted and going off in a crazy direction. Um, my path isn't even totally straight. And look at the needles under it. My life can be a mess like that as well. But I thought, Lord, when you come into my heart with your love and the light of Jesus, I am transformed and God sees me as beautiful. And that's the same way it is with you. When the light and the love of Jesus comes into your heart, you are transformed, and God sees you as beautiful. And when the love of Jesus is shining out, sometimes even others see us as beautiful. And the cool thing about studying 2 Samuel this semester We're going to see Jesus throughout all of 2 Samuel. Now, we see Jesus in the Old Testament, but I don't think there's a book where we see him more clearly than in 2 Samuel. We're going to see the promise of Jesus, God and man, coming to earth to redeem us from our sin. We're going to see foreshadowing of Jesus all the way through 2 Samuel. 
God's story of love and salvation, relationship continues through 2 Samuel. So originally, 1 and 2 Samuel were one book. And then when it was uh, translated into Greek, they divided it in two. So 1 Samuel flows right into 2 Samuel. Now, if you weren't here last year when we studied 1 Samuel, do not worry, because uh, I'm going to give a brief review today over 1 Samuel, so we'll all be uh, caught up here. It'll be good for us to all have a review. 1 Samuel revolves around three men, Samuel, Saul, and David. And it has to do with the monarchy in Israel being established. That is what is, uh, that's what we're studying in First and Second Samuel, the establishment of the monarchy. And so First Samuel opens up with the birth of Samuel. Hannah, his mother, she's a godly gal. She prays and asks God for a son. And she says, I will dedicate him to the Lord all his life. And so that's what happened. God gives her a son. She names him Samuel. And when he's a little boy, she takes him to the priest, Eli, and there he lives. And we read those verses about Samuel growing up, following and obeying God. And God was with him. That phrase is very important. We're going to see it throughout these books. And it's good to know when you see God was with him, everything changes. Everything changes the same way with us today. And that's why I love the name for Jesus that's Emmanuel, because that means God with us. When we have Jesus, we have God with us. So Samuel was the last judge, and he was also a prophet. Now, what does that mean, last judge? Well, let's take a little detour and go back to the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of God's story, because That's what the Bible is. It's God's story of love and salvation and relationship for human beings. You and me, we are part of God's story. So Genesis opens up with creation. We know that God creates the universe, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus uh, is involved. He's the creator of all things. On your verse sheet, we read that, Colossians 1, 16. This is talking about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus, the creator, Adam and Eve are created, the very first two human beings, and they walk with God. They have this loving, great relationship with him until one day Satan comes, tells them his lies, and Adam and Eve listen to Satan, and they rebel against God. Sin enters the world, but God has a plan, and that plan is Jesus. We see that in Genesis 3 verse 15. You can look that up later. We see that God has this plan of Jesus who would come to defeat Satan and death. Skip forward a little bit. Chapter 12, Abraham comes on the scene. Now, Abraham loves God. He follows God. And God makes this unconditional, no conditions, unconditional promise, covenant promise with Abraham. He promises him land, specific land, many descendants, and blessing. Blessing on Abraham, and from Abraham would come a blessing for the whole world. That is another reference to Jesus. Jesus, the one who would come to earth to save us from our sin, a blessing 
for the whole world. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons and their families, along with Jacob, go to Egypt because there's famine in the land. So they go to Egypt. And over time, they are enslaved by the Egyptians. 400 years, they're in slavery. But during that time, they grow and they multiply until they become a people of 2 million, maybe even more. And God calls them his people. He calls them his treasured possession. And so he sends Moses to deliver them, to take them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and to that land that God had promised Abraham so many centuries before this. And so that's what happened. Moses leads them there now. It takes a little bit of time because of the Israelites' disobedience, but they make it to the promised land. Moses dies, and Joshua takes them into this land. And they defeat the enemies and they divide the land up among those 12 tribes and their families. Those families, that's from the original 12 sons of Jacob. Those 12 tribes um, are divided up in the promised land. Things go uh, well for a while. Joshua is leading them. God is ruling over them through Joshua. They're obeying God and following God. And then Joshua dies, and it says that whole generation dies, and the book of Judges opens up. And that next generation, they have forgotten all about God, and they've turned away from God, and they're following other uh, ungods, foreign gods that aren't even real. And we see that in Judges 2, 11 and 12 on your verse sheet. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Those are the false gods of their other people. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is a dark time in Israel's history. And so a cycle begins that goes like this. They turn away from God, and so God allows the enemies around them to oppress them. And so after a while of being oppressed, they turn back to God and they call out to God and God in his grace and his mercy raises up a judge, a military leader who would go out and defeat the enemy under God's uh, rule, victory. And the Israelites then experience peace and they follow God for a while. They obey him. Uh, But all too soon, they turn away from him again. They follow other gods, and the cycle is repeated. They're oppressed by the enemies. After a time, they call out to God. God, in his grace, raises up a judge, a deliverer, and uh, gives them victory, and they follow God for a short period of time. This happens over and over again for 300 years during the time of Judges. And each time the cycle is repeated, the Israelites become more and more corrupt, a dark time in their history. But God's grace shines bright in the book of Judges. The end of Judges, we get a little foreshadowing of what is to come. That's Judges 21, verse 25. On your verse sheet, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So a lot of evil going on, doing right in their own eyes, but we see no king. And so now we open up to Samuel and we see that the monarchy will be established. We see this brings us back to Samuel now. He's the last judge, and we also said he's a prophet of God. Now, a prophet of God speaks God's words. So Samuel speaks God's words to the people. He is 
Israel's spiritual leader. And we read those verses. Samuel has a close relationship with God. God listens to Samuel and God answers him. God fights for Israel and he gives them victory over their enemies. And there's a great story, 1 Samuel chapter 7. You might want to read that later. He gives them victory over the Philistines. But then chapter 8 opens up and it tells us that Samuel has uh, grown old and the Israelite leaders come to him. Now, by the way, he's like 70 years old. Not really all that old, but the people come to him and say, you're getting old and we want a human king to rule over us, to judge us, a human king like all the other nations. So Samuel is uh, super upset when he hears this. He goes to God, he tells him all of this and God says, Samuel, they are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me as their king. And so Samuel goes back out to the people and he says, hey, you have a king. God is your king. God fights your battles. Where Israel's not like other nations. God fights your battles and gives you the victory. But they say, we want a human king. And so God says, tells Samuel, give them a king. Now, a king, let me tell you this, was always God's plan for Israel. He mentions to Abraham and to Jacob that one day kings would come from their descendants. We also read in Deuteronomy where God tells Moses certain instructions and laws for the kings that were to come. So it was God's plan, but just not yet. This wasn't God's timing. Instead, it was the people's timing and things will not go well for them because God's timing is always best. Even when we don't see it, it's always best. We might think, no, now's the time, Lord. I need to do this, or I need to get this, or I need this part, whatever. Remember, God's timing is always best. Wait on God's timing. But they don't. Samuel goes out and he anoints Saul, the first king of Israel under God's direction. By the way, I just want to say Samuel is an amazing man. Amazing. He's up there on the same level with Moses. He trusts God. He obeys God. And God is going to use Samuel as Israel transition into this time of the monarchy. That's why Samuel is also called a kingmaker. He anoints the first two kings of Israel. And Samuel is going to help Saul all he can. And for a brief shining moment, chapter 11, it looks like Saul is going to obey God and follow after God. But all too quickly, he disobeys God because Saul wants what he wants. Saul wants his way. He wants his will, not God's will. And so he disobeys God and it comes to a pivotal point in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel when Samuel speaks the words of the Lord to Saul. And he says this, go and destroy the the Amalekites because for hundreds of years, the Amalekites have been against me. They have rejected me. They despise me and turn away from me and they hurt my people. And now the time of judgment is upon them. So go Saul and destroy all the Amalekites and even their livestock. So Saul goes out with his army. God's giving him the victory. But Saul does not obey God. He leaves some of the people alive, including the king of Amalek. And he brings the very best livestock back for himself. And when Samuel 
goes to Saul and confronts him on this sin that he has disobeyed God, Saul says, no, 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 I haven't. Saul never admits his sin. Those of you that have looked at 1 Samuel, we see that. He never admits his sin. He never owns it. It's always somebody else's fault. In this instance, he blames the people. They wanted me to do this. And he says, oh, and the livestock, I'm going to sacrifice those to the Lord. There's lies. Those are lies. Saul never admits his sin. And I think that is a warning for me. Maybe it's a warning for you. We know people like that. They don't take, maybe it's your children. They don't want to take responsibility for their sin. Maybe it's us, but we need to admit our sin, to own it, because we do not want to be like Saul. So God says, that's enough. I reject Saul, and the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. God tells Samuel, go and anoint David. Young David, he's a teenager, but David is the king of God's choosing. Now, Saul was a very tall and handsome man. The people loved him, but God tells Samuel, the Lord doesn't look on outward appearances. The Lord looks on the heart. And what was David's heart like? We read that. 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us. And this is um, Samuel talking to Saul. And he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. David is a man after God's own heart. So David is anointed king, but it will be some time before he actually ascends to the throne, Uh, actually 15 years before he takes the throne. And at first, Saul likes David. David kills Goliath. David is victorious in battle. David can play soothing music for him. Saul likes him until he realizes the Lord is with David. And then he becomes very jealous of David, so jealous that he wants to kill him. Now, Jonathan um, is Saul's oldest son, and he's also David's dear friend. They have this deep friendship. And so he realizes his dad, Saul, wants to kill David. So he goes and warns David, and he says, you must go. Do not stay here. My dad wants to kill you. King Saul wants to kill you. And so now David is a man on the run from Saul. Many amazing things happen in these last chapters of 1 Samuel with uh, David on the run. Uh, One thing, some uh, about 400 men come to him. They're the down and outers, the disenfranchised. They come um, and gather around David. And because God is with David, they are successful. We see God protecting David in so many different situations. And also God is teaching David lessons. Twice we see David with an opportunity to kill Saul. But David does not kill him because he knows Saul is the Lord's anointed. And David knows God's timing is best. So look at verse 1 Samuel 24, 10. This is where we see David. He has had the opportunity. He's gotten so close to Saul while Saul was in a cave that he cut off part of his um, cloak and then sneaks away. And later he says to Saul, "Um, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed David believes that Saul is the Lord's anointed and he is going to wait, David will wait for the Lord to remove Saul from the throne. 
Towards the end of 1 Samuel, we see David at a low point. His faith seems to be a little weak in the Lord. So he uh, aligns himself with the Philistines, the enemy of Israel, thinking that here he would be safe from Saul. And then one day, the Philistines decide they are going to go up into battle against Saul and the army of Israel. But God in his providence does not allow David and his mighty men to fight against Israel. Instead, the Philistine generals tell David, you go back to Ziklag. That's where David had made his home in, among the Philistines. And so he goes back, and it's a good thing, because when he gets there, he finds that the Amalekites have um, burned Ziklag. They have captured the women and the children and all the livestock and taken them off. Did you notice that? The Amalekites, those are the same people that God had told Samuel, to, had told Saul to totally destroy, but Saul had not obeyed. And so now some of these Am Am Amalekites have gone to Ziklag and have taken David's families and friends um, into captivity. David, under God's direction, he goes after them. He finds this band of Amalekites, defeats them, and brings back the women and children and the livestock. At the very same time, up north, we have a battle going on at Mount Gilboa. The Philistines are defeating Israel. And on your verse sheet, we see the last chapter of 1 Samuel 31 tells us this. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to the armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword, he fell upon it, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So Saul and his three sons are killed. And 1 Samuel comes to a close, and we open up in 2 Samuel. But before we look at chapter 1, um, let me give just a brief overview of what we're going to see in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel continues God's gracious establishment of the necessary monarchy. It's necessary because Jesus, the King of Kings, will come from the line of King David. Now, David is the reigning king in 2 Samuel, David, the king of God's choosing. 2 Samuel uh, covers 40 years. It's the whole reign of David over um, Israel. And the whole book of 2 Samuel revolves around David. David is the hero. David is larger than life, but he's also real, and we can relate to him. We might see our story in the middle of David's story because David is also acquainted with sin. And we might think some pretty big sins, um, pretty big sins. But David handles this sin totally different than Saul. David confesses it and repents, and he receives forgiveness from God. David is very much the opposite of Saul. David always wants what God wants. He always wants what God wants because David is a man after God's own heart. He has a heart for God. What does that mean to be a person after God's own heart? Well, I think a simple description, we love God and we believe God. 
That's what we see in David. David loves God and he believes God. And here's four things that we're going to see David believing in the book of 2 Samuel. One, he believes that God is um, Israel's supreme ruler. God is ruling over Israel because God is the ruler over all things. Second, David believes God is completely righteous. Completely righteous. Righteous means right and just and good. Completely good. Third, David believes God is always merciful. And we're going to see that at the end of 2 Samuel when David is uh, going to experience some discipline. And he says, let this discipline come from the hand of God, not the hand of men, because God is always merciful. And the fourth thing he believes is that God's will is always best. God's will is always best. Even when he doesn't understand it, he believes that God's will is always best. He might have to step back and say, what, what, Lord? But he knows God's will is always best. And David, because of his attitude towards God, he becomes God's instrument through whom God accomplishes his larger plans and purposes Now, we cannot thwart God's ultimate plans. God is sovereign. His plan goes forward. But our attitude towards God determines how God will use us in his plans, how he will use us. You know, it's our attitude towards God, not our ability that determines how God will use us. In fact, Thomas Constable says, our attitude toward God determines our ultimate victory. It's our attitude towards God not our ability that determines how God will use it. So how is your attitude? How is your heart towards God? Do you love God? Do you believe God? In 1 Samuel, we see how Saul's attitude toward God brought misery to him, and he dies a humiliating death. In 2 Samuel, we're going to see David, his attitude towards God, obeying God. We're going to see that he... um, under his leadership, the monarchy is firmly established. David is the political leader. He is excelling in that. Israel's united. North and south become one Israel under David. He's also their military leader. God is with David, and so he is successful every time in every battle. He excels as the military leader. David is also the spiritual leader in Israel. He is going to set up Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and it also will be the central place of worship as he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. David leads the people to worship God, to follow God, to trust him, to walk with God in obedience. David excels as their leader because God is with him. And we're also going to see in 2 Samuel, David as a family man, his personal life. He has many wives and many children. And so it becomes very complicated. In fact, we might say pretty messy. That's what happens here. And it becomes a source of grief and sadness for David. Some interesting stories towards the end of 2 Samuel. So a simple outline for Samuel is this. Chapters 1 through 10, David's triumph. That's where we see um, 
David experiencing um, victory in all of his battles. David extends the borders of Israel on all sides. He is triumphant. And then chapters 11 and 12, that is David's tragedy. This is his sin with Bathsheba and his um, setting up the killing of her husband. Although God forgives David of his sin, the consequences of his actions will bring great trouble to David. And so we see in chapters 13 through 20, David's trouble. And then the last four chapters, 21 through 24, are an epilogue. A couple more stories. They're not sequential, but pretty interesting there. And then we're also going to see David's last praise song and his last words. Although David is seen throughout 2 Samuel, this is God's story, and David's story is just in the middle of it. It's all about God. We see the personal, sovereign God preserving his people, showering grace on David and Israel. We see God keeping his promises and making new promises of a perfect king who would one day come to earth, Jesus Jesus, he's, he's promised in 2 Samuel. And as God's story of love and salvation, it will continue in 2 Samuel. Look for your story in the middle of God's story in 2 Samuel. That's what we see, David's story, right in the middle of this. So let's open up to chapter one of 2 Samuel. So much for us to learn this semester It will increase our faith, and it's going to draw us closer to Jesus. Be looking for Jesus in 2 Samuel. Uh, Chapter 1, let's look at verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the uh, Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, we just talked about that, um, the end of uh, 1 Samuel. David is in Ziklag. He has gone back. He's defeated the Amalekites and brought back the children and the livestock. And at the exact same time, up north, we have the Philistines battling against King Saul and the army of Israel. And they're actually uh, defeating Israel. I have a map we can put up there. We can see you also have a map in your... um, handouts there. And so at the very top of this map, even a little bit north of where this ends, that is Mount Gilboa. That is where the battle is taking place between the Philistines and King Saul and the army of Israel. And then down south, way down south, you see Ziklag. That is where David is. So it's about 80 miles, and it would take about three days for someone to get from Mount Gilboa, the battlefield, down to David in Ziklag. So let's look at verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and he paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. Okay, so David hears the tragic news of Israel's defeat and the death of King Saul and his beloved friend, Jonathan. And this is tragic news for David because David loves Israel. And he also recognized King Saul as David's, as God's anointed. David is humbly waiting on the Lord to remove Saul. So Saul is not David's enemy. He is not in competition with Saul. 
because David recognizes God's sovereign control in this. He sees Saul as the Lord's anointed. So let's go on and see what is said next. Then David said to the young man who told him, this is verse five, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Mm, Interesting, that uh, word again. And he said to him, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Interesting story we have here, but it's not exactly the same story that we read at the end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31. That said that uh, Saul, King Saul, asked his armor bearer to kill him, but the armor bearer said no. And so Saul falls on his own sword and dies, and then the armor bearer falls on his sword and dies along with him. That also, by the way, is the same account that we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 4. Chronicles is another book in the Old Testament that records um, the activities of the kings of Israel. And they have the same story as chapter 31. So this story that's a little different, I guess it's possible that Saul wasn't really dead. And the um, Amalekite walks up and he does Saul's bidding, kills him but it's probably more likely that he is lying. Now, obviously he's on the battlefield and he's the first one to get to Saul because he gets Saul's crown and his armband um, off of Saul, who is dead. Maybe uh, he was a mercenary that was fighting alongside Israel, but it's probably, many commentaries think, that he was someone uh, that's called a camp follower of the Philistine army. He would um, follow the Philistine army and scavenge some of their spoils. So it's easy to see why he would want to bring Saul's crown and armband to David. He wants to gain favor with David. So let's see what happens. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. We see that David is grief stricken. He's overwhelmed with grief. He's genuinely sad and sorrowful over the death of Saul and his very beloved friend, Jonathan, and over the defeat of Israel. David is mourning. He's tearing his clothes, which was a common um, expression of grief in that day. He's weeping. Maybe he's wailing. He's fasting. He's not eating anything along with all the others in the room. Maybe some of you have been in a situation that is You were so sad. You were so grief-stricken that you couldn't even eat. So sad, maybe crying loudly. That is what we see David doing here all day long until evening. And what about this Amalekite messenger? Well, you can draw that emoji with the shock face, big eyes. He cannot believe this. 
He must have been taken aback. He must have been surprised because this is not what he was expecting. He thought David and all the people would be cheering. They would be rejoicing over this news that Saul is dead. They would be happy. But instead, they are wailing. They are grief-stricken. And he must be taken aback and maybe a little fearful as he should be, because let's see what happens next. Verse 13, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, we mentioned earlier how um, David had the opportunity to kill Saul when Saul was actively trying to find David and kill him. But David would not lift a finger to harm King Saul because he was the Lord's anointed, just like Saul's armor bearer would not kill Saul. It was out of fear and reverence for the Lord God not to harm the Lord's anointed. Now, whether the Amalekite did kill Saul or he was just lying about it, God knows the truth, but he brought judgment on himself and David has him executed. Instead of receiving David's favor, the messenger receives death. And by executing the Amalekite messenger, David vindicates Saul and he demonstrates that Saul was not his enemy. It would be a good thing for the Israelite people to hear of David's actions, but it was a very dangerous thing for the Philistines to hear about David because this seems like David is now aligning himself with Israel. And you remember the Philistines, they still think David down in Ziklag is aligned with them. But I don't think David is afraid. He is, his confidence is in the Lord God. And we're going to see that next week in chapter two. Chapter one, though, it's going to end with a song of lament for Saul and Jonathan. David says, teach it to the people and write it down and write it in the book of Jashar. Now look that up. And that book of Jashar was a collection of poems